we humans have buried our dead for at least 50,000 years, as evidenced by the recent exhumation of a Neanderthal burial site found in southwestern France in 2013. Many of our ancestors and many people today believe sacred burial or mummification rituals help prepare our mortal bodies for an ascendance into an afterlife. This faith in a heaven is the sole reason you don't go digging up dead bodies. Well, that and they do smell like sh**. In tonight's true story, however, we discuss how the demand for scientific advancement led to a grave robbing epidemic causing mass public outrage and trepidation for the nearly departed. Two entrepreneurs, William Burke and his cohort, William Hare, found the ultimate solution to these cryptic woes. Instead of digging up a rotting, buried cadaver to sell to science, they could just as easily find a fresher one still walking the street. that this beer says family owned operated and argued over yes <laughs> i just noticed that for the first time we're drinking hazy little thing ipa jen is this your favorite um it's up there okay. it's definitely my top three mm. um i think that sam's new england ipa is still mm. my favorite um but this is close it's a sierra nevada hazy little thing it's very good surprise shots Surprise shots. We don't know what they are because they're a surprise. On the table again. Yeah, I don't know where my bongos are. Why don't you just look for them? I did. (laughs) You were really robbing the audience of, you know. I am ashamed of myself. They're probably in one of my many cabinets. I swear they're in one of those bins. No? I don't... Jenny, you moved into this house like six months ago. No, it has not been six it's months. It's time to unpack. It's been two months. <laughs> when, when, yeah. I'll, two months be today, another, actually. That'll be another project that no, we. Three months today. We need the bongos. Oh, no. People look forward I, to the bongos. Um, Is this one of those shots that we did for the 12 shots of Christmas last year? I don't think so. I don't Western. remember. Western. Nope. I don't know. It was good. I I still don't know my liquors yet, which is kind of sad. Vodka? No, but it is in the vodka family. Gin. gin. It is Seagram's watermelon gin. Ah, that was good. Yeah, it was tasty. The, yeah, I can taste the watermelon now that you say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so apparently vodka and gin are really closely related. Mm-hmm. What it's one? Juniper. One juniper. Yeah. Jennifer, juniper. Dun 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 dun. That's a song by Donovan. Who's Donovan? He was a singer in the 70s. He also sang, you call me Mellow Yellow. Hmm. So tonight I got a great story for you guys. It's an older story. And as you know, I've been working on this new podcast, Ghoul, which the second episode is up right now on all your podcasting apps. So be sure to go download that and subscribe. So the third episode of Ghoul is going to focus on Ed Gein's grave robbing. He was a huge grave robber. So I thought we would do tonight's story and pay homage to the OG grave robbers. Do you guys know who that is? No. No. That is William Hare and William Burke. 
Oh. You guys probably will remember who these guys are. But this was 60 years before Jack the Ripper. And it's actually the first ever serial killings to attract media attention. Really? They killed 16 to sell their corpse to the university. H.H. Oh. Holmes did this too, right? Uh, so. No, he just had a murder hotel. He didn't think, actually sell the bodies. I think he did. Oh, I don't know if he did or not. I'm pretty I didn't sure. do that story. I want to go back and watch American Horror Story Hotel. That was a good season. Some of the popular culture that Burke and Hare has inspired is Edgar Allan Poe's Blackwood, which I never read. So Burke and Hare also inspired The Body Snatcher, which is a 1945 mm. horror film, and also inspired Ed Gein. So a little bit about the Ed Gein story that I've been so heavily researching for the podcast is Ed Gein would rob these graves and he would cut off certain parts of the body that he wanted to keep. And the thing about Ed Gein is he was known for reading these sleazy crime and true detective magazines and a lot of the Nazi uh, war crime stuff from the time period. You the know, Bitch with, of Beacon Ward? Yeah, the Bitch of Beacon Ward, which we did that episode the other day, like a couple of weeks ago. So be sure to listen to that. It's about these Nazi experiments and stuff like that. He would read this stuff. Like Ed Gein would read all these magazines. And he would also read stuff about Burke and Hare. So he was inspired by this story, by these two guys to go rob graves. Ed Gein stole bodies from three different graves around Plainfield, Wisconsin. And very similar to what guys like this were doing at the time. It also kind of reminds me of Borgen and Burks from Harry Potter. Mm. It reminds me of Bert and Ernie because I thought he said Bert and not Burke. <laughs> this story also resulted in the Anatomy Act of 1932, which we're going to talk about because this story is, yeah, it's serial killing, it's true crime, but it's a lot of economics, a supply and demand in this story. I hope you guys like this. This is William Burke now, as of 2020, if you want to describe what he looks like today. He's still around. Oh, very handsome. <laughs> he is a skeleton. Yeah, he is a skeleton. Looks like an anatomical skeleton. Like one that you would see hanging up in a classroom. In yeah. the Museum of Anatomical Museum of the Edinburgh Medical School. Ooh. Well, sure. Yeah, that sounds That's like it. That's where he is right there. Hmm. And you'll see it's really funny that they actually have his skeleton up because it's almost like an FU. Not just a skeleton to study, but they also made a business card holder out of his skin. Oh, oh, whoa. This is his skin right here as a business card. That is very ornate. Yeah. So if you're new or this is your first episode, I put all my sources and photos, including the photos that I'm showing tonight on talkmurder.com. So be sure to go there and click on the post with the Birkin hair story and follow along with us if you're not driving. And tonight we are reading the anatomy murders being the true and spectacular history of the Birkin hair murders and the man of science who abetted them in the commission of their most heinous crimes by Lisa Rosner. I think the best way to do this story is to start at the very end when they got caught and work our way back so you can see the evolution of these two guys. They were convicted of 16 murders, all in all. And this is in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. You've been there? Scotland. I have not been to Scotland. My mom's been there. She brought me souvenirs, but I've never been. All right, so we're starting tonight's story, Saturday, November 1st, 1928. This is Margaret 
Ducherty, also known as Margaret Campbell, if you want to describe what she looks like. And this is obviously an illustration because, you know, cameras weren't a thing back then. Hmm. Elderly. Like, a, she looks like a little Italian grandma, even though I know this isn't happening in Italy. Well, she, she's she's Irish. All right. So well, there's a lot of Irish immigrants. Look, looks like a, a bonnet on her head. She's wearing a striped, she's got a striped coat and long blue skirt in this illustration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you would see her in town in Scotland, you would immediately know that she's a recent immigrant. Now, she's actually between the years of 40 and 50 years old. I know she looks a lot older, but they well, surmised her age was about 45 to 50. Also sign of the times. They, yeah. they didn't age well. No. Yeah. Back then, 40 to 50 was like our old, 80. Yeah. yeah. So Margaret goes to the Edinburgh's annual livestock festival. Now the streets are filled with all kinds of livestock. This is where the farm, it's like a farmer's market oh. in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. So she's at this farmer's market She's actually looking for her son. Her son, as we'll talk about here in a second, is also an immigrant, but a uh, a uh, traveling for work type mm. of immigrant. Like so, a gypsy? No, not a gypsy. So basically, there's an influx of immigrants from Ireland and even other countries during the harvest season, mm. which is usually at the end of the... It, this time right now okay. is the harvest season. Okay. So they need all the migrant workers they can get. So her son actually traveled over to Scotland to be part of this harvesting so he can get paid. Mm-hmm. And this was a huge thing at the time. They would all come over here just for the harvest season. Anyway, no one knows why she went there to find her son. We don't know that information. But we do know she was walking through the farmer's market on October 31st, 1928. So Halloween day she was. She goes to the Irish side of town and she is from Ireland. So she fits in with this, these people in this, you know, it's kind of like a Chinatown. All the Irish people would hang out here, their Mm -hmm. Irish bars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So she goes to the Irish part of town, which is in Westport. And she feels at home here. And this is where she started to use her name, Docherty instead of her her married name of Campbell because mm-hmm. because that's an Irish name and Campbell is a Scottish name. Right. So she's walking around using that name and she is uh since she's a traveling female, she's asking for charity. She goes into the little grocer and people give her a few shillings or whatever mm-hmm. here and there just because she's a sweet old lady, you know. Right. And she's approached by this handsome, confident man who gives her, you know, a shilling. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the correct thing, but he gives her some charity and then he asks her her name. And she says, well, my name is Margaret Ducherty. And he says, oh, what a coincidence. My last name is also Ducherty. Hmm. Okay. That is quite the coincidence. It is a coincidence. So this guy was obviously Irish. He gives her a few penance and he says his name is Ducherty. He invites this woman for a drink because she's Irish and he's mm-hmm. Irish. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's 3 p.m. and they're not blasted out of their mind yet. And this is odd. True. Wait. So this guy invites the woman to drink at his apartment that mm-hmm. he owns with his wife in Wester Portsboro. 
she doesn't know this at the time, but he actually lied about his last name. How do you spell that? How do you spell what? The her last name? Docherty? Yeah. D-O-C-H-E-R-T-Y. Huh. So I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. No, you are, but I don't. I never heard that name before. So she didn't know this at the time, but this confident young man lied to her. His name is not Docherty. His name is William Burke. He is the apartment owner of this flat, and he's got a lot of tenants. And I'm going to kind of glimpse over this in a little bit. But as a landlord, when you have that influx of immigrants coming to work the harvest season, Mm -hmm. you know, that's when the money comes in. So the rooms are filled during this time. Right. Which means you got to be extra careful if, you know, you're going to kill someone. Right. As I said, she was searching for her son. He arrived for the harvest in November. The son was reported to live in Pleasance a little uh, town there. One of William Burke's neighbors saw her on October 31st, Halloween evening, quote, supping porridge and milk by a fire. She was also really intoxicated at the time. So one of the tenants, Anne Conway, she actually meets Margaret and lets her know that William Burke had lied to her about his name. So she's a little worried. He oh, yeah. is, she's supposed to be staying with Burke. you renting the room for the night. Or Docherty. Whatever his name is. Yeah, exactly. Docherty. But now she knows that his name isn't Docherty. And he obviously lied. But maybe he was just lying to her because, I don't know, he, he I don't know, he wanted to kill her. Which probably was going to happen. Yeah. Right. And Ann Conway testified in court that they were all, quote, merry dancing and drinking in her apartment. But she has to get up early in the morning. She's actually getting up at 3 a.m. to go search for her son. Yikes. That's yeah, early. she really wants to find her son. I mean, I, I get that. Yeah. At 11 p.m., a downstairs grocer that lives, that uh, works in the, you know, the space downstairs from the flat says that he hears a ruckus. Mm-hmm. All kinds of arguing and stuff. And even someone screamed the word murder. Ooh. Whoa. So when he was hearing the ruckus, this is exactly what was going on. And this is from the Anatomy Wars book. Burke positioned himself on top of her to compress her lungs. And hair covered her mouth and nose with his hands. Her face became livid and blood-flecked saliva came from her mouth as her heart pumped hard in a fruitless effort to send the diminishing supply of oxygen through her body. There was no real struggle. Burke, though small, was solidly built, and he and Hare had done this sort of thing before. Once she was dead, they stripped her body and put it under a quantity of straw lying at one end of the bed. And this is actually the murder that they get caught for, because Burke's wife... Are his not not his wife, but his like uh, the girl that has been living with him for ten years, mm. uh, Helen McDougal, which is her name. She has relatives staying over during this during the weekend on Halloween, mm-hmm. and actually Burke had went to them that night, and he said, "Hey, listen, I um." I need you guys to get out of here tonight. I arranged for you to stay at my friend's house, William Hare and his wife, Margaret Hare. And they were like, you know, why are we, 
why do we have to leave and stuff like that? And he was really adamant about getting them out just for the tonight because they were going to kill someone. Mm-hmm. They didn't know this at the time. But when they came back, they discovered the body in Burke's bedroom. Ah. And, they, and they're the ones who confronted them and then went straight to the police. And that's how this thing ended. So let's continue. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about William Hare and William Burke. Okay. So we don't know a lot about either William Hare or William Burke, but we do know more about Burke than Hare. If you want to mm-hmm. describe this guy, this is William Burke. Um, younger fellow mm-hmm. with um, mutton chops. Yes. Yeah. But he also, you can tell that he's like with of what? English of or Eng- of English or Irish descent. Yeah, so he's Irish. Both him and his uh, compadre are Irish. So William Burke, he came to Edinburgh as a, a navvy, N-A-A-V-Y, which is like a navigator. Oh. He is actually was a navigator for the canals that were being built in lowland Scotland at the time. Oh, cool. Yeah, he was born in Ernie County in Ireland in 1972. At the time he was arrested, he was 36 years old. A little description about him. Now, this is from the jail description. William Burke was five foot five inches, quote, complexion swarthy with brown hair and blue eyes and an oval face. So he does kind of have an oval face. He was also charming and well-spoken. Now, his family history has been lost, but this is the weirdest thing about William Burke. He was sober as an Irishman. He didn't drink at all. He didn't drink at all. Yeah, that's unusual. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even going to try to deny that reputation because, you know. As you're cracking up another beer. You know, the Irish are fun, man. We are great people. Yes. Can I just say there's an Irish bar in every city, you know, there. um, This is my only my second beer in like over a week. In like 10 minutes. Over a week. (laughs) Like I've been doing really good about drinking. This is my this is only my second beer after the four I just had an hour ago. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So he was also the outgoing one, which is important because he's the one that could go up to the victims, right? He right. went up to Margaret Docherty and stuff like that. William Hare was more the introvert, so if it wasn't for Burke, they wouldn't get any victims at all. Mm-hmm. All right. He's the charmer. And we're going to describe what they look for in a potential victim, which a lot of it's a lot of it's going to surprise you why they would choose a certain type over another. So okay. we'll get to that in a second. But In 1809, he joins the Donegal Militia, and he serves there for seven years. That's where he meets his first wife, Margaret Coleman. Well, I wouldn't say first wife. She actually just stopped responding to his letters. She ghosted him. Yeah, she ghosted him. (laughs) But she took her two kids that hurt his two kids, too, and ghosted them. So he never never saw his kids or his wife again. That's kind of sad. Well, he also killed 16 people. Oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, still, that's true. I mean, yeah. So as I said, he was a migrant worker at the time working on the canals, and that's where he wrote his wife. He wanted his wife to come live with him over there, and that's when she just ghosted him. She's like, peace. Mm-hmm. So here's Helen McDougal right here, if you want to describe her for the audience. <laughs> I don't know how to describe her. What is going on she with looks that like hair? A, she looks like one of those handmaiden tail women, doesn't she? Yes. Kinda. Yes. But like, is she wearing a hood? 
Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's like a bonnet with curlers, with like I don't know if she's wearing a bathrobe. She, she must be wealthy. No, she's not wealthy. She's just, I mean, she's pretty. Is she though? I don't know. It's an it's an illustration, so we can't really know. Also, the 1800s and yeah. fashion was much different back then. Yeah, she needs to show some more cleavage. Yeah, that was not a thing back then. <laughs> that meant you were the pros- homeless prostitute yes. on Jump Street. <laughs> yes. So, so Helen McDougal, she was actually not the wife, but she just lived with William Burt for 10 years. In fact, in court... Did she, she- not know what was going on? Okay, that's... That's the thing. Uh, yeah, we're, yeah, we're gonna get to that. We're gonna get to that here in a second. But to bring that up, the defense lawyer for her says, "quote She has lived with the prisoner William Burt for ten years." So, so they were trying to make it sound like she was, you know, just helpless, the helpless victim that had no idea what was going on and that she couldn't really leave the relationship type of thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she was born in Stirlingshire. Now, she was 33 years old when she was arrested. Tall, brown hair, blue eyes, round face, fresh complexion. And she actually never married Burke, as I said earlier. Ah, living in sin. Did they have, like, common law marriage by then? No, that wasn't a thing. Well, because it was also a rule where you don't have to test, you can't testify against your spouse. Right. No, I don't know. You know what I mean? Well, this is also not American courts. True. True, true, true. So let's talk about William and Margaret Hare. If you want to describe this, this is William Hare. He has a a triangle-shaped face. Very gaunt. Yeah. Like high cheekbones, thin, elongated nose, brown hair. Mm-hmm. I think. I don't know. It's well, again a sketch. It's so. black and white. <laughs> I'm, I am not sure. But dark hair. This also could have n- nothing... No relation whatsoever to what these people actually looked like, but that's okay. This is just our interpretation of said drawings. When William Hare was arrested, he gave his ages 21, which is probably not correct, but that would put his date of birth around 1807. He was five feet, four inches tall and quote. Oh, short guy. And had a quote. Wait, 1907? 1807. 1807. And had a quote pale complexion, small face, brown hair, and hazel eyes. And Margaret Hare, his wife, was 31. Jail records describe her as middle-sized with black hair and hazel eyes. She also has an oblique face, fresh complexion, and she's missing a tooth in her upper jaw, which is how I like my women. Both both husband and wife uh, notes one journalist, quote, an epitome of all that is mean subtle and ferocious Hmm, ferocious yeah so before we go any further let's talk about the anatomy wars why in the first place were they killing they were not killing for pleasure they were simply killing for a financial gain now during this time like a hitman uh kind of you'll see it here in a second but during this time edinburgh was the place to go if you wanted to become a surgeon, because at the time, if you wanted to be a successful surgeon or doctor, you had to have a certificate that proved that you were involved in a dissection of a human cadaver. Mm. So this story is about the supply and demand of cadavers. Well, the University mm. of Edinburgh is known for their medical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so Dr. Monroe 
at the time, he was the uh, the head anatomist, and he actually comes from his father, and then his grandfather all held the most prominent position in the university, and they were wow. world-renowned for being the professors to go to to learn anatomy. Now, I wonder if that's because they all, like, each generation was so skilled, or if it was just mm. nepotism at its finest. Good question. Where the fuck is nepotism? Nepotism is when you have a familial tie to someone of like high status, and then you, yeah, get, be- was, you get perks and benefits. Yeah, from it, it. yeah, it was hand me down. And actually, Dr. Monroe held the most privileged position in the Edinburgh University. He literally had a monopoly on dead bodies. If you want to become a surgeon, you have to be present and active in the dissection of a human cadaver but cadavers just don't show up anywhere and there's a lot of medical students so the supply was nil compared to the demand Mm. the demand was through the roof right Hmm. we had um when i was an athletic training student we had um to do like the muscle exam and they had cadavers and we had access to cadavers. Ugh. Yeah. We didn't dissect them. No, thank you. Yeah. It was at that point where I was like, not like that was when I was like, I don't think this is for me, but that's not the main reason. That mm-hmm. was just one of them. Also, I failed that exam. Dr. <laughs> Doc- that was the main reason. Dr. Monroe literally held a monopoly on the dead bodies. The Scotland government mandated that every cadaver that came up, let's say a drunkard drinks too much or someone that falls off a wagon, whatever. If there is a cadaver, it must go to Dr. Monroe's university and and his class specifically. So he held a direct monopoly. No one else could get into the game. That's why Edinburgh was the place to go for the anatomy class Mm. right the anatomy education the doctors also had free reign to charge their own fees so dr monroe was rich really rich and as i said each person becoming a doctor was required by english law to be part of a human dissection all right if you want to read this this is from the anatomy murders book 500 or more students arrived in October for the start of classes, spending three guineas per course and anywhere from 100 pounds to 500 pounds for each year they resided in the city. Anatomy and physiology taught by the succession of professors Monroe was the moneymaker par excellence, attracting more students than any other course for most of the 18th century. Wow. This created a body war, a need for cadavers, and not a steady supply at all. So this brought in a new phenomenon of criminal called the resurrection men or the resurrectionist, which were basically grave robbers. And this was an epidemic at the time. And you guys can understand why robbing graves was such a big thing. Think about if your grandma or your grandpa dies and you go to their graveside all the time, knowing that their body is not even in there mm. and that they have been, you know, ripped out of the grave by someone like Ed Gein or whatever, stripped apart, took all their arms and everything off. I mean, you don't want that to happen. No. And so there was a public outcry 
uh, and rage about this because grave robbers, these resurrection men, it became a huge problem. Well, yeah, okay. because, I mean, it's not something that, you know, you would expect to happen. You go, you, like, but not if you do it correctly and i am not what if you, you do, do what correctly if, if you do if you grave rob correctly what that, the fuck are you talking let about let me finish talking and i'm not <laughs> condoning grave robbing but if you do it correctly then the people the victims don't necessarily have to know but you are robbing them of that experience of being with their loved one even if their loved one is in the ground like if they think that they're there you know, with their loved one, then they're actually not. They're just standing at a rock in a piece. Well, of, like, as I will talk, well, as I'll talk about later, most of the most, and this is kind of crazy, the grave robbers, and this was like a thing they had an etiquette, even though they're criminals doing something illegal, they would still cover back up the grave and kind of put it like it was right. to begin with. That's what I'm saying. That was the thing, but eventually. It got to the point where they would just leave them open with arms scattered everywhere if they couldn't find the whole body or whatever. But if you're doing it, like, if you're being careful about it, it's a crime that, you know, I'm not saying has no victims because, the like I said, the family, you know, well, and the person, like, the, the person who is deceased, their body doesn't need to be dug up. Like, they deserve, you know, to be at rest. But if you do it in a certain way, it's something that, you know... Nobody so, needs to know. Yeah, no one needs to know that it happened. This reminds me of a video which I'll put on talkmurder.com, so be sure to go check it out. You may have already seen it, but there was this tape that came out in the 90s, and it was like one of those handy cam recordings of this kid. He was probably 16 or 17, and he gave a detailed instruction on how oh, to rob graves. Oh, I remember you showed us that. Yeah, yeah. And... It, you know, and he actually showed some of the, the skulls. The parts, so yeah. he was talking about, let, let's say you go rob, I don't know, first thing I thought of, Burt Reynolds' grave. That <laughs> his skull. first thing you thought of. <laughs> I forgot that he died. <laughs> his skull would, would get a high price to yeah. someone. It's like murderabilia, right? I mean, to mm. somebody, yep. it's worth a lot. You know what I'm saying? So he somebody. was. You know, what it, uh, you know what it reminds me of? Pet Cemetery. Yes. I just watched the remake. It reminds me of the reanimator from H.P. Lovecraft. We watched the reanimator one and two. <laughs> and the bride of the reanimator oh on Shudder. That sounds like Shudder is freaking awesome. You know what was good that I picked, you're uh, welcome, was um, it was called Mayhem. It was a Shudder original. Uh-huh. And it, did you ever watch, um, what's that? Walking well, Dead. Walking Dead, no. yeah. Well, one of the main characters, who was my favorite character in that show, wasn't it? The Asian kid. Yeah, he was great. So if you're a grave robber and you get caught, you would be found guilty of, quote, violation of sepultures. Is that is that the word sepultures? I've never heard that word before. I know there's a band called Sep Sepultures, it's like one of those death metal bands. <laughs> <laughs> but I never knew how to pronounce that either. So I think it's sepultures. But I think you pronounce it like. like yeah. 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 <laughs> but how what would the fine be like? You would obviously get jail time. But what would be the uh the sentence mm -hmm. if you robbed a grave and got caught today or back then no no back then because this is going to show you part of the problem of um, people robbing graves it was a slap in the hand it was yeah, yeah you'd you'd get like five minutes in the tomato hand no maximum <laughs> well yeah maximum six months but 
as you'll and see, how much were you getting there paid? There you go. That's what I'm about to say. What's the cost it, versus uh, risk versus reward? Yeah. So there you go. It depended on who you sold it to and what condition the body was in. We're going to get to this in a minute, but so, children mean, would not sell very much. Oh, um, well, s- um, that's good. Someone who has had disease after disease after disease would not sell a lot. You want a healthy also, person. You need a healthy and a fresh body. But, you need it very fresh. But um, that kind of that kind of is curious to me that someone with a disease if you were they selling wouldn't it, want to study to, it yeah if you were selling it to a medical university or something you'd think that they would want to kind of look at someone who died of a certain disease to be able to mm. kind of learn more about that but i guess maybe science was not that evolved back then you you don't want kids you don't want someone that is really disease written you don't want someone who has been in the grave for too long, which became a huge problem mm. because if you... Then you got to start killing people. If your mama dies, you know, knock on wood, if your mama dies you, and you know people are robbing graves like crazy because of this economic situation, you're going to have a a guard at their grave for at least two weeks. And if the body is pulled out, and it's over two or three weeks old, it's too far gone. The maggots have done eaten it down. It's mm-hmm. done de- decomposed, and the university's not going to want it. So you got to get something really fresh. So these grave robbers would usually rob the poor pauper graves and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, however, as you'll see, Burke and Hare, they would never kill a poor person, ever. Until the early years of the 19th century, the most energetic body snatchers were the anatomy lecturers themselves, who led their coterie of students in the nocturnal raids on local churchyards. Stories were still told of the great John Hunter scoring London for human and animal remains, like medical students from Vesalius onwards. In Glasgow, every public teacher had what he called his private party, Pattinson explained. This consisted generally of eight students, and those young gentlemen went out themselves and exhumed the body. There was simply no other way to obtain cadavers, and I suppose the whole time I studied in Glasgow, Pattinson continued, that there was probably not a single student who had an opportunity of making any dissections if he did not belong to an anatomy lecturer's private party. All right, so this was a huge deal because the lack of cadavers got so bad that in Dublin, children were being kidnapped. Children with like no records or anything. They would be kidnapped off the street, murdered, and then sent by a steam vessel over to Scotland. Oh my gosh. Were these like children of immigrants or? No, I was thinking like orphans or something maybe. That would be my guess. So a lot of the bodies came from overseas. You know, um, not overseas. So they but, couldn't be traced. Yeah, really? where they couldn't be traced. They came from Ireland or whatever. <sighs> you know, I guess do, like donating your body to science wasn't a thing back then. I was just going to say that. Yes. So what you're looking at now is an actual grave tower. This is what they had a result to. If you want to describe this, this is in the cemetery. Oh, it's literally a watchtower. Wow. So they would be armed guards at the grave. This was an epidemic. Wow. Wow, I mean, it yeah. almost looks like a fancy morgue. Yeah. Now, the families would carry guns, their own guns, and they would to shoot To protect you. graves. Yeah. It was life or death. Like, this... It's fucking the Rambo. grave robbers, you know, they it had to be prepared. It like a war. They had to be prepared to die. Oh, you asked how much they would get. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so 
in today's money, it'd be anywhere from four to eight hundred, nine hundred dollars. That's pretty good. A body. That's pretty good considering the amount of time you probably put into it. Probably yeah. a couple of hours yeah. of work. Well, this yeah. this book goes into heavy, heavy detail about the economic situation in the world at this time. And it was not good. Right. Okay. Most people, even the immigrants coming to work the harvest season or whatever, they would make nothing. Right. I'm talking about nothing. Well, they were immigrating to make kind of like, yeah. not to make yeah. something, but to make, not to make more than nothing. Better. Yeah. They, 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 they're, they're leaving a bad situation. And even though it might not be like a lot better, it's better than what they have. Right. And this point is really interesting after you see in this grave tower here. As I was reading this book, if you dig up a really wealthy person, or if you dig up a very poor person, in the end, you'll get the same amount of money. Does that right. blow your mind? A rich person and a poor person, it doesn't matter after death. Right. Which yeah. is kind of a body's like, a body. Uh, which is kind of comforting. Can't right? take it with you. Exactly. Exactly. So spend it all. So, you know. Or don't have any <laughs> to make it with. So, which is the reason the grave robbers would rob poor people mainly because they're not going to have like the guards and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But when they do rob a rich person, when you sell it to Dr. Monroe or whoever, it ain't going to matter if they're rich or not. A body's a body, like you said. Now, what you're looking at now is a mort safe. It's kind of a uh, a device they use to stop grave robbers. It's basically like a a, a, a metal bar set you it's put like around the casket. A jail for yeah, for it's coffins. like a jail for yeah. coffins. Yeah, to prevent the zombie apocalypse. Jeez, yeah. I never mailed that book to Shannon, by the way. I need to do that. <laughs> so there's other incentives too to digging up these bodies for one you could pull their teeth out and at the time dentures were actually made with real teeth cadaver yes. teeth Ugh. so you could sell those and also the jewelry if they had any jewelry on them now i i have a question did they take the the deceased person's teeth before they were like robbed from the grave did did the hmm. morticians do that when because they were making dentures out of that or was that something no 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 so it depends on the the body no Think about your mama dies. You ain't going to want them to sell their teeth. No. Yeah. So you're not going to want it. The body's yours. It's your so family's. You can, you're so not going to want someone to go rob it of their teeth. You know? Right. No. So they, they would if they could, if they could get away with it. But yeah. most time the family wouldn't allow it. So this brings me into the first body. The first body that William... Hare and William Burke brought into the doctor. They actually brought it into Dr. Monroe was not a murder victim. They literally had no idea that they could make money from this. Okay. They were just, I mean, everyone kind of knew, but they didn't think that, you know, they would ever be in this profession. Mm -hmm. Right. They right. were just laborers. So this is the first body that they brought in. It was not a murder victim. His name was Donald and he suffered and died from dropsy do you know what dropsy is i've heard of it but i don't mm -hmm. remember i'm not going to show you a picture because it's really freaking disgusting but it's the buildup of fluid basically your leg blows up because it's got so much fluid in it yeah. it's really gross or something so he died from that but he was also a tenant of william burke and he was a, a pensioner so he was just an old man 
a frail elderly man who got dropsy and died. He was a pensioner. He was getting government assistance and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Hare wanted to sell the body, but Burke really didn't know. He's like, ah, how much will we even get for it? Like, you know, whatever. But they had to dispose of it somehow because the corpse at the time was not the property of either Scottish or English law. So if your tenant dies in their apartment, they're not going to come pick them up. You got to dispose of their body. Yeah, that seems so you, weird. So you might as well go try to sell it. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> resourceful at that point. Yeah, you would definitely sell it. Hare proposed that his body should be sold to doctors with Burke to get a share of the price. It would be impossible to do it, replied Burke, for the carpenter would be coming in with the coffin immediately. But once the coffin was delivered and the corpse duly placed in it with the lid nailed down, the carpenter left. Hare took a chisel, opened the coffin, and he and Burke hid the body in one of the beds. They took the tanner's bark from behind the house, packed it tightly, put it in the coffin, covering it with a sheet, and then they nailed down the lid again. And the coffin was carried away for internment. They went to sell the corpse to Dr. Monroe, and when they got to the University of Edinburgh, they were met by this other guy named Dr. Robert Knox, and he becomes a huge part of the story, and I'm not going to really get into him, but he was the one, the single one, that received all of the corpses from Burke and Hare from now on. He was actually in direct competition with Monroe. He was sick of the Monroe monopoly, and he was an anatomist, and he was selling it himself. So he would pay, let's say, 10 shillings for a cadaver, and over the long period of time, he would make triple or quadruple that amount in return for this dead body. Mm. So he would be the one who bought all of these cadavers. Now, this case goes into detail about, well, is the anatomist, Dr. Knox, to be blamed for this? Because he didn't ask any questions. They you know, knew where they're coming from. Yeah, in fact, they did. The, in fact, the cadavers that got there, their face was usually so mauled up because they would beat their face in so you can't recognize them mm. and strip everything out. They would just be like, yeah, he just died of, I don't know, the flu. You know, and obviously he was murdered mm -hmm. but the doctor never asking questions so that was one of the moral standings like is this the fault of the doctor for turning a blind eye or not he claimed he didn't know but yet when they would get arrested or when a grave robber that would sell to him got arrested he was also known to pay the wife of the person the grave robber that was arrested uh. while he was in prison you know, a little penance here and there so they can live on while they were in prison. So, you know, did he know or not? Because a, a legal cadaver would be someone that literally died of whatever and now you deliver it. Not someone that you dug up from the grave and especially not someone you murdered. Right. You know what I'm saying? So and he turned a blind eye to everything because it was such a an economic phenomenon here. Now, these two guys have killed so many people that they're not even sure who the first one was. It was either hmm. an Abigail Simpson, a female, or a Joseph. And there's no last name on that Joseph. Hmm. So if you want to read this, Nicole, this is uh, from the book right there. Did you know that Prince Philip is the Duke of Edinburgh? I did not. Yes. 
After drinking for much of the night with Hare, she lay insensible on her back in the bed, and Hare then said that they would try and try and smother her in order to dispose of her body to the doctors. According to Hare, the first murder was Joseph, a miller, also one of his lodgers, who was very ill, lying in bed, and could not speak sometimes. Hare and his wife were uneasy that rumors of fever in the house would keep away other lodgers. Moreover, Joseph was apparently close to death, and so Burke and Hare agree that they should suffocate him for the same purpose. So with Joseph, Burke takes a small pillow and lays it across his mouth, Joseph's mouth. And then Hare lays across the body to keep his arms and legs down so he doesn't flounder around too much and cause a ruckus. Now, this is actually called burking. It's the murder technique, and it's ingenious. Now, as you'll see, these two guys are not ingenious. They're really dumb criminals. They're extremely dumb criminals. Mm -hmm. But the technique that they invented, even though they didn't intend for this purpose, the technique, it's almost impossible for the medical examiners or the police to tell that the victim has been murdered mm. because the burking method was so ingenious that it basically hid all the telltale signs of murder. Interesting. Hmm. So that's what they use, the burking technique. But it's basically burk shutting the nose and mouth to prevent air from coming in and then hair laying across the body to prevent the victim from floundering around and causing too much of a ruckus. Because as you'll see, this part of town that they're in, there's a lot of neighbors. I mean, they, they were in an apartment with multiple neighbors. Thin walls. There's, yeah, thin walls and everyone's cramped in together. So they had to figure out how to murder all these victims without anyone hearing it. Mm. So that's why they did that. If you want to read this, this is from the Caledonian Mercury. As the Caledonian Mercury explained to its readers, clearly relishing the anatomical detail, at every inspection, the ribs of the chest or thorax are dilated by muscular action to an extent of about one-fifth larger than immediately after expiration, and in cases of a full or strong inspiration, to nearly one-third. A partial vacuum is thus produced and the atmospheric air rushes in by the trachea to fill the cavity in the diaphragm, the recipient of the air inspired, and to oxygenate the blood. The first point is to compress the ribs and thorax so as to prevent this dilation, and if the compression be powerful, it will of itself be sufficient to destroy life in a few minutes, without the application of pressure to the throat at all, and without leaving on the body any external marks of violence. Nor need the compression be long continued, for independently of the necessity of respiration to support of life, the blood for want of oxygen instantly becomes poisoned, and this of itself would occasion immediate death. Burke's account confirms this for, he said, once they had kept the mouth and nose shut a very few minutes while compressing the chest, the victims could make no resistance, but would convulse or make a rumbling noise in their bellies for some time. Mm. Once all crying or other signs of resistance ceased, he and Hare would let up on the victims, leaving them to die of themselves, but their bodies would often move afterwards, and for some time, they would have long breathings before life went away. 
so the technique is actually ingenious. Now, as I said earlier, they didn't intend for this to be this way, but you really can't tell if the victim was murdered. Most time you just think he died of a drunken stupor and he was just so drunk that, you know, his breathing got so slow because the way they did it, one of them would lay on the chest and that prevents the thorax and the lungs from taking that big breath from expanding you know what i'm saying and then the other one would plug the mouth and nose so they're not breathing at all Mm -hmm. but they can the doctors can't tell that they were struggling for breath because their lungs didn't expand and stuff like that and their thorax or whatever that's how it it was ingenious Mm -hmm. that they did that you know what i'm saying But it was really because they just wanted them to be quiet exactly because they were in an apartment you know with five or ten other tenants and they didn't want them to hear them you know like the first one we talked about margaret ducerti the downstairs grocer heard Mm -hmm. all the rumblings right they had to be really quiet to do this that's why they did it but it was ingenious because they you can't even tell that they were murdered to begin with there were also no marks on skin a lot of times today when you have a murder victim that was strangled so if your wife pisses you off and you decide to kill her, you put those hands around her throat and you just start. Those marks stay on the throat. So they the doctors know, hey, you know, she was strangled to death. But this method, there's no proof right. even today. Yep. So I'm just saying. Now, let's talk a little bit about who they would kill. And a lot of the victims don't even have names because their, you know, records weren't the same as they are now. Mm-hmm. But. Obviously, the people were usually very drunk. They were not poor. Do you want to guess why they were not poor? Because their bodies were in better condition? No, it's not none to do with their bodies. I wouldn't know this either. But poor people collect pensions from the government. Ah. So if, you, if you're collecting a pension, think of welfare nowadays. Mm-hmm. You're going to have the welfare officer or whoever come and check on you every three months or whatever. You know what hmm. I'm saying? And then they're going to see that, hey, wh- where is she at? They're going to know. Interesting. Yeah, that's why they didn't kill poor people. Also, they like to kill the very old and the very sick as well. So it's like, oh, he just died of he's freaking old. Right. You know? So, and obviously they didn't kill children. Do you know why? They weren't worth as much. There you go. If they were worth more than a, the grown adult, they would have killed them because mm. they were doing this purely off economic gain. But that is their pretty much their M.O. You know, they weren't criminal geniuses. In fact, they wouldn't even have been prosecuted if they would have got their story straight. Because, like I said, the Birking technique, there was no evidence at all. There was nothing. They convicted them just on testimony. And, the, and, they, and how they convicted them is they approached Hare, William Hare, the one with the actual wife, the one that, you know, wants to not be in prison or not be hanged for his mm-hmm. murderous crimes. And they got him to turn King's evidence against his partner, William Burke. And that's how William Burke was the only one that got in real big trouble for this. Mm-hmm. And he was hanged. Right. Like, oh, wow. uh, yeah, almost a few months later. William Hare got full immunity, wow. turned on his partner, and that's basically the story. But that's, and I know I... And Burke is in the medical university today. Yeah, Burke is in the medical, and I think they did that as a FU, you know, yeah. they, they hit his... They had his body. They, yeah, because, dude, there's cadavers everywhere. They could have just got the skeletons, but they wanted to keep Burke. And not only that, they took his skin and made a freaking business card holder 
I mean, at least make a full wallet. Like, what a dick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, but, it, but, but it was a business for him. So at the same time. But, you know, it's interesting that they wouldn't have like I you would think that people who were ex who were killed, who were killed for whatever reason, you know, as their punishment, like you would think they would automatically go to universities. I wonder if that was part of the. No, they did it as a F you. No, yeah. I know, but I'm just thinking yeah. like that actually would be a good way to get bodies. Because yeah. they, and it has been brought up before they were even arrested that there's probably going to be some entrepreneurs out there that, you know, understand that if they kill people, they could make a lot of money. You know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. the grave robbing was getting a lot harder to do. Yeah, right. Now these mort safes with the cages, they're basically cages for the uh, casket and the guard towers. I mean, what's the next evolution here? Right. And the fact that you have to have a certificate that you've been in a dissection, that you've helped in a dissection. Dude, you're like literally tying society's hands behind their back. Like, right. What else can we do? Like if you need cadavers, but there's no cadavers, like there's nothing else to do. This is the natural evolution. So once they started talking about this, then they realized, hey, for the past 14 months, these two individuals have been doing this. So now we got a problem. So that's the story. So they killed 16. Do we know how many bodies they actually brought forth? I don't know how many. 17. I mean, they... They didn't grave rob that many. They didn't grave rob that many. No, not... They didn't grave rob at all. They were just worried about... the, yeah, getting the bodies. Ex- so exactly. Mm-hmm. So the first body was the one that died of dropsy. They bring him to Doctor Knox, and he pays him a very small fee. I mean, you, you know, a usual body would get six to a thousand dollars in today's currency. They probably got four hundred, and they were ecstatic. And they were like, "Holy fuck!" Even though, you know, Doctor Knox pretty much. You know, lowballed them, if yeah. you will. Mm-hmm. They were ecstatic, and they were the only ones that were like, "Fuck, let's let's make a business out of this." So then they started bringing them just this one guy over and over and over and over and over, and he never asked any questions. So it was just happenstance that this that they got into this business. Yeah, it was just because that tenant died, and then they realized that they just made a shit ton of money. So I'm sure that other people had killed people like this. They were just the ones that got caught. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure that this was not just them that thought of it. Right. But I mean, if they were, it was such a worrisome thing that they had cages around bodies and stuff. But yeah. that was for great robbing. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, that's the story. And the reason I want to do that story is obviously because I've been researching Ed Gein and and he is a grave robber. He's he's robbed quite a few graves and he did it for other reasons. But you got to go listen to the Ghoul podcast to uh, to learn why. If you like this story, please subscribe. We put out episodes every Tuesdays and Fridays now. So, and my name is John, and I'm here with Jen and Nicole. And uh, until next time, good night, you lovely, lovely people.